History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 261st episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. On this episode, we're going to be in southern Illinois, and our location was suggested to us by listener Andrea Ward, and that is the Old Slave House, or it's also been called Hickory Hill, or also Crenshaw House. This has a horrific history when it comes to slavery. Yes, in southern Illinois, there was slavery. And there was something called the Reverse Underground Railroad as well. We're going to talk about all of that and the ghosts that are at this location in just a moment. But before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Samantha, Sarah with an H, Jill, Jess, Elaine, and Alicia, who has a very interesting spelling for her name. Welcome, ladies. Looks like we had all girls this time. And now, this moment, Naughty. a group of islands in the state of Georgia known as the Golden Isles. These islands include Jekyll, Sea, Brunswick, Little St. Simons, and St. Simons. I was passing through a few days ago and learned of the local legend of Cora on the island of St. Simons. She is a spellbinding beauty that is part human and part fish. Yes, a mermaid. She's rarely been seen by islanders, but those that have spotted her say that she's full of grace and has the deepest green eyes they have ever seen, and light brown hair. Cora's purpose is to protect the eggs of the loggerhead turtles that are buried in nests along the St. Simon's beaches. Cora hums a song along the shoreline as the turtles hatch. This song guides the babies to the water. The mermaid teaches them to hunt and how to keep safe in the water. She then returns for the next batch of newborns. This all takes place on moonlit nights, which is why Cora is rarely seen. Her image is carved into one of the trees on the island, as are the images of 19 tree spirits. These carvings were created by sculptor Keith Jennings starting in 1982. Only seven of them are in public viewing areas. The idea that the island of St. Simons commissioned the work in tribute to their local legends certainly is odd and very cool. This is Victoria from victoriaslift.com. When I'm not taking those who must choose their destiny for a ride on the lift, I'm listening to History Goes Bump podcast. History isn't boring, it's terrifying. The past remains with us, and so do its spirits. Can you hear them calling? They want you to know their stories. Listen now to their voices and the truth from the past. And now, this month in history.
In the month of June, on the 3rd, in 1972, Sally J. Prison became the first woman in America to be ordained as a rabbi. Rabbi Prison was born in Cleveland in 1946, where she aspired as a teenager to become a rabbi. She attended the University of Cincinnati and received her bachelor's degree in 1968. After that, she won admittance to the rabbinic school at Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion in Cincinnati. Keep in mind through all this dreaming and all this schooling that there was no such thing as a female rabbi in America. Rabbi Prysan was dogged by skepticism everywhere she went. No one believed that her dream would ever come true. But in 1972, she was ordained within the reform movement. She quickly secured the position of assistant rabbi at Stephen Weiss Free Synagogue in New York City. She left there in 1979 because they would not promote her to senior rabbi. Several other temples rejected her, but finally became a senior rabbi at Temple Bethel in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Three years later, she became rabbi at Monmouth Reformed Temple in Titton Falls, New Jersey, and remained there until her retirement in 2006. Whether one calls it the Crenshaw House, Hickory Hill, or the Old Slave House, one thing is certain about this house that sits on a hill in southern Illinois. The horrific history of its past certainly lends itself to a negative energy that backs up the claim that this is one of the most haunted locations in Illinois. Not only were slaves brutalized here, but an operation known as the Reverse Underground Railroad did a good job of thwarting the work of the Underground Railroad. This may surprise some as Illinois was a free state, but that did not stop the actions of evil men. The hauntings that have been experienced at this place are negative and chilling. Join me as I share the history and hauntings of the Old Slave House. I just spent a few days in Charleston, South Carolina, had an amazing time, got to hang out with listeners Deb, Maggie, and her husband Joe, and Dina from the Twisted Philly podcast also joined us. And we went to the Old City Jail there in Charleston before it closes down to tours for good. We just had to get inside. And on the next episode, I will be revisiting the old city jail. We did it in a previous episode, but now I'm going to do another one since I've been inside and can give you firsthand experience of what we had happen. I haven't gotten a chance to listen through all the audio yet, so I'm not sure if I caught any EVP or not, but we all definitely got some weird pictures and weird feelings. Charleston, South Carolina is full of history. It is such a great city. If you have not visited it, you absolutely must. And part of the history that happened in South Carolina is the slave trade. And it was big in Charleston. This was one of the hubs, I guess is how we would coin it today. The slave trade in South Carolina was alive and well for more than a century. Charleston was a key place for trade and human slavery during the 1800s. Slave auctions were held downtown near the old exchange building. Feeling the pain and sufferings of these auctions is expected in places like this in the South. Hearing stories of painful events connected to slavery in the North is not as common. That's probably why the stories about the old slave house in Gallatin County in Illinois are surprising. Gallatin County was organized in 1812 and was named for Albert Gallatin, who was the Secretary of the Treasury at that time. Equality is a village within that county, and it became the county seat. One draw of the village was the nearby salt works. Native Americans called it the Great Salt Springs and used the salt until the French came and began extracting it in 1735. And even though the French were here and then the American colonists and settlers came in, the tribes in the area retained control, but they finally ceded it to the U.S. government in 1803. Then what the government did is they would lease out the extraction of the mines with the requirements that a certain amount of salt 
had to be produced. So they'd say, you over there, you can rent the mine, you can work it, you can make money with it, but you need to produce this amount of salt or else we are going to force you to pay a penalty. Work in the salt mines was nasty and grueling. You can only imagine this is a kind of work that most people would not want to do. Really, the best alternative for people who had these salt mines was to use slave labor, except for we're in southern Illinois. So how in the world can you be using slave labor? Because, well, Illinois is a free state. You don't have slaves there. Oh, but there was an exception. There were some anti-slavery treaties that were put in place, but an exception was made for those salt mines because nobody else wanted to work in them. So the government was like, well, if we want production to be up here, we're going to have to look the other way when it comes to slavery. They didn't just use slave labor. They also used indentured servants as well. There were 239 slaves on the 1820 census in Gallatin County. So if people think, no, there were no slaves there. Well, the census says, yes, there was. In 1838, many of these slaves would call the mansion John Crenshaw built home. And it was really a very unfortunate thing for those slaves. John Hart Crenshaw was born in November of 1797 on the border of the Carolinas. His family went all the way back to the founding of the country. They eventually moved west to Missouri until the big earthquake in 1811 destroyed their home. They decided to make the move to Illinois and started a farm on the east side of Eagle Mountain where there was a salt well. So this salt business goes way back in his family. This salt well was called Half Moon Lick. It was shortly after the move that John's father died, leaving him as eldest son to care for his mother and six siblings. He ran the crude salt refinery at Half Moon Lick then. Perhaps it was this part of his life that turned him into the cruel and evil man he would become. Crenshaw would become worse than just a slave owner. He would use his influence and money to kidnap free slaves, force them into breeding, slavery, and send them back to the South. The slaves that he owned would be locked in chains, a sound that would rattle through the ages and can still be heard today by those that venture into the home, branded with no trespassing signs. In 1829, the government decided to stop leasing their salt mines and offered the men who were producing the salt a chance to purchase their holdings. John Crenshaw was one of those individual operators, and he decided that he was going to do just that, purchase his holdings. He would eventually buy up several thousand acres of land and build a sawmill and three salt furnaces for processing. His fortune grew, and one thing that gave him a lot of pull in the county was that he paid one-seventh of all the taxes collected in the state of Illinois. So if you want to know how rich this guy was, just think about that. All the people who live in Illinois paying taxes and he paid a seventh of them. So you can imagine when he talked, people would listen to him, especially in the government. And as an example of this influence that he had, Abraham Lincoln visited his home in September of 1840 when he was a state representative. He was attending debates in equality and had been invited to a ball being held at the Crenshaw house. The second floor had a space that could easily be converted to a ballroom. Mr. Lincoln spent the night in the southeast bedroom of the Crenshaw house. He more than likely slept on the floor because the Crenshaws did not have a big enough bed for him. Some stories claim that he slept on two chairs as well, but I can't imagine how uncomfortable that would be for a man as tall as President Lincoln was. Now, it may not be that people just turned a blind eye to Crenshaw's kidnapping and illegal slave trade. Crenshaw was a man of the church and a successful businessman, so many would not have even suspected that he was up to the kind of activities that he was up to. It may not be that they knew what he's doing and just weren't paying attention to it or trying to ignore it. They may not have even had a clue because a man like that would never do that, right? Perhaps they knew he was working black people as slaves, but they did not know that the third floor of his home was a barred chamber of horrors. 
nor that he was hiring out men to kidnap free blacks. But I seriously doubt that people didn't know something was going on with him because he was charged with kidnapping in 1828. The case involved the kidnapping of an indentured servant named Frank Granger, whom he sold into slavery in Kentucky. And following that, he kidnapped a free black woman named Lucinda and her two children. He took them to Kentucky as well and sold them. This was all before he built Crenshaw House. But still, I would think some of these people would know, and we know how gossip flies in towns. Crenshaw House, or as a lot of people like to call it, the old slave house, was begun in 1834 and finished in 1838. The mansion was built in the classic Greek style and was three stories tall. Basically, that third story is referred to as an attic a lot of the time. When you look at the house, there's two distinct levels, and then there's like a peak with a window, so you could tell there's another floor there, but a lot of people would just refer to that as an attic rather than a third floor. The front porch featured large columns cut from the hearts of individual pine trees. These columns framed the large verandas. There were 13 rooms on the first and second floors. Each one had a separate fireplace. And the bathrooms that the Crenshaws had in their house were the talk of the town, so apparently they were more modernized than people were used to. Crenshaw furnished the house with lavish European artwork and furniture. That third floor he reinforced with thicker walls and had over a dozen cells installed. They each had metal rings and chains and were about the size of a horse stall. And even more horrifying were the whipping posts installed at both ends of the hallway. Keep in mind that Crenshaw was married with five children and the family living quarters were on the first and second floor. There was little light or air up here either. Don't let the small number of cells make you think he had few slaves. These were just mainly for the purpose of running what would be called the Reverse Underground Railroad. At one time, Crenshaw had around 700 slaves or indentured servants, and some of those servants were white people as well. So what is the Reverse Underground Railroad? If you're like me, I may have heard that term some time ago, but I don't recall. So this was kind of new to me. I was like, wait a minute, what do you mean a Reverse Underground Railroad? What is that? It basically is what it sounds like. It's just the opposite of whisking black slaves to freedom. This was capturing free slaves and selling them off to southern states. Kidnappers physically abused and psychologically terrorized their captives. One of the goals of the beatings was to cause such fear a free black person would not try to claim their free status. On the episode in which I featured the Sorrel Weed House, I had wondered how is it that you could have all of these slaves that way outnumber the masters and they never tried to, like, overthrow them or try to get away in some way. I, I just couldn't understand how you could have these large numbers of people and have them held down by these masters. But, you know, we see it with governments all the time. You could have a huge mass of people that want to overthrow a government that is a really small government that's a dictatorship, and they just can't do it because these governments or these slave owners or in this case, kidnappers, would psychologically terrorize these people into a state of fear that they felt like they couldn't do anything. They would take away their power. That's what happened in this case a lot. So even though these people had known freedom, they were a free slave. Some of them had papers that said that they were free. They were so scared that they wouldn't tell anybody what was going on. Then once these kidnappers sold their victims into slavery, you could just hang it up. Their chances of ever being believed that they were free, were completely diminished at that point, And their chance of being free again was gone. Even when owners heard the truth about a slave that they had bought actually being a free man who had been kidnapped, those owners tended to ignore that information because, hey, 
I just paid a bunch of money for this person. I'm not giving that up. They didn't want to lose their investment, quote unquote. And even if a kidnapper was brought up on charges, it was nearly impossible to prove that a slave had been free. Keep in mind that in many places, blacks could not testify against whites. It was illegal. Only a white person could confirm a black's freedom and most feared repercussions or persecution for helping a black person and sending a fellow white person to jail so they wouldn't say anything or help to defend these people. So that gives you an idea of what was going on with this reverse underground railroad. So not only do we have these people terrorized that are trying to get to freedom and may have already gotten free, they had to fear that at some point they could be kidnapped and sent back again. Because obviously Crenshaw and his cronies weren't the only ones doing this. There was a large network. It was very lucrative. Crenshaw had several hired men that he used to make sure none of his slaves escaped, but he also used them to help kidnap free black people. They would smuggle them across the Ohio River to Kentucky. They used a secret wagon entrance on the back of the house to bring in covered wagons carrying the kidnapped blacks. A set of stairs carried these people to the third floor. There they would be whipped, raped, and tortured. Some even died from the treatment. When they couldn't find enough free blacks to kidnap, Crenshaw started a breeding program using a black slave named Uncle Bob as a stud. You see, pregnant women sold far more at the auction. A lot of people like the idea of getting two slaves for the price of one, quote unquote, only pay a little bit extra for her. She's got a little extra on board, you know. One of the legends I read claimed that Uncle Bob sired up to 300 children. Crenshaw was again charged with kidnapping in 1842 in the case of Maria, his cook, and her seven children. He was found not guilty. But don't worry, things are going to start going south for Crenshaw here. People started talking and wondering about his methods. There's only so many times he could be brought up on these kidnapping charges before people start saying, you know what, he's got to be doing something. His sawmill mysteriously burned to the ground. Now, I couldn't find any information about this, so I don't know if it was an accident. I don't know if some of the townspeople set it on fire or if maybe some of the slaves set it on fire. The market for salt changed and it became less profitable. His empire was going to crumble. Several civil court actions were brought against Crenshaw. His business holdings began to drop after salt deposits were discovered in both Virginia and Ohio. These deposits were more profitable than those in southern Illinois. And then there was the slave revolt. And if people want to doubt that this man was cruel and did anything to these slaves, there is a picture on the internet of him sitting with his wife and he has a cane because, well, something happened during this slave revolt that's going to affect his physical body and lead to the fact that he's going to need a cane. Now, I'm not sure why it took as long as it did to have a slave revolt, other than the fact that there was maybe this fear-mongering or something, because these slaves clearly outnumbered the night riders, the overseers, and other men that Crenshaw employed. But revolt they did, and during this attack, Crenshaw was hit with an axe and lost one of his legs. It's believed that the revolt was fueled when Crenshaw beat one of the female slaves in the fields. After the attack, most of the slaves were sold off and the salt mine was closed up. Crenshaw sold the old slave house during the Civil War and moved to a farmhouse closer to equality. He not only farmed there, but got into lumber, railroads, and banks. He died on December 4th, 1871, and was buried in Hickory Hill Cemetery. So good riddance to that bastard. In 1906, the Sisk family bought the old slave house. When they entered the home, they saw the awful secret the Crenshaw family had been hiding. The cells and chains were still on the third floor. Soon word got out and people flocked to the home wanting to see the horrors within. By the 1920s, the Sisks had themselves a real tourist destination. 
People would catch a meal in town and hear from the waitress all about the house on the outskirts of town where actual slavery in Illinois had taken place and that the Reverse Underground Railroad had a home at this place. The Sisks would accommodate all these visitors and give them a tour. Eventually, they figured out that they could make some money with this endeavor, and by 1930, they were charging admission. They started advertising that for just a dime or a nickel, if you were a child, you could tour the place where slavery existed in Illinois. And that was a direct quote that they used to advertise it. Eventually, George Sisk passed away and his son inherited the property. He continued to run the museum, but in 1996, Junior retired and closed the museum. In December of 2000, the Sisk family sold the house to the state of Illinois for $500,000. In 2004, the National Park Service named the Crenshaw Mansion as part of the Underground Railroad National Network to Freedom Program. It has been estimated that renovations would cost $7 million to get the museum opened up again, and the state does not have the funds for that. So the house sits basically abandoned. The house is not quiet. This property has enough negative energy absorbed into it to feed the spirits of many angry and mourning spirits. There are said to be a number of ghosts on this property. The disembodied sounds of moaning and cries of pain have been heard here dating all the way back to when the Crenshaws still lived in the house. When the house was open as a museum and for tours, as many as 150 people tried their hands at an overnight stay on the third floor. These people were trying to debunk the local legend that no one could spend the entire night in that space. An exorcist named Hickman Whittington visited the house and planned to put the ghosts of the house to rest. His plan didn't work, and a legend claims he died after spending the night in the attic. I could find no proof of this Hickman Whittington or his death or that he died in the house after this. So I'm not sure that that actually happened, but clearly whatever he did didn't work because the ghosts were still there after he had been there. Two Vietnam veterans challenged to stay overnight in the attic ran out of the house screaming in fright. They said they fled because they were surrounded by ghostly shapes and non-human figures. These reports caught the attention of famed paranormal investigators Ed and Lorraine Warren. They visited the house and in a 1978 tabloid described their visit to the house as the most demonical place they had ever visited. I think they said that about every place they visited, didn't they? (laughs) Only one person was able to last the entire evening and that person was David Rogers. He was a reporter from a local TV station, WSIL-TV. He did this in 1978 and reported that the attic area was full of strange noises. These noises resembled cries, whimpers, and even the rattling of chains. This lined up with reports tourists had been making for years. Rogers also captured several EVP and claimed that he felt queasy the entire evening. He did not experience some of the more scary elements of hauntings that others have, like being brushed by unseen figures or feeling the icy touch of an unseen hand. The slave quarters seem to emit negative feelings that are felt even by people who are not sensitive to such things. These are feelings of intense fear, sadness, and of being watched. Joy Neighbors reports on her blog, A Grave Interest. I have a friend who went there several times in the 70s. She also mentioned the feelings of fear and despair that seemed to fill the attic. She said on one trip, some one thing touched her arm and hair, and she was out of there. Another story comes from someone going by the initials TM. I visited the house in the early 90s, not realizing what it was. We had small children and needed a place to pull over and let the kids stretch. We pulled up to the place we were the only vehicle in the parking lot. I had a brand new video camera and wanted to try it out, so I immediately began filming. As I panned upwards, I noticed a black woman in a white dress and bonnet staring out of the third-story window. 
Then she rotated 90 degrees in a floating motion and drifted back toward the center of the house. We then walked up to the front door and met with a man and woman who greeted us and informed us there would be a tour starting again in 30 minutes. I asked if we could join the tour that was going on right now. The woman said the only two people in the house were her and her husband. I said, how did you get down from the third floor so quickly then? I told her I filmed her as I was walking up the stairs. She looked at me and said, I don't go up there anymore. Long story short, I prodded her into telling me why. She said she encountered a little slave girl up there and it was between her and the stairway, thus trapping her until it left. I'm glad I filmed the place. It was incredible and had a lot of old guns, knives, and history, which was explained on the film and to the rest of the tour. I never believed in ghosts before we happened by this place, but believe me, it will make a believer out of you. On the video I still have here, you can hear my little boy stating every few minutes, Dad, can we get out of here? The place really gets to you, and after the house tour, we went out back and checked out the tool shed, which had wares of the era, along with a human skull of one of the slaves. I showed this film to several people, and none of them could explain the floating lady at the beginning of it. If it ever opens back up, check it out. I know it's still intact because we were with kids competing in high school rodeo a couple of years ago, and the kid camped next to our rig currently lives close to there, and he mows the property for the guy who takes care of the place. He said even the old cave is still there that leads to the river. And there is a story that there's some kind of tunnel system that was another way that they got the slaves to and from the house without being seen, which I assume is that old cave. Today, do not trespass signs are plastered around the property and on the house. A caretaker lives in the home to keep trespassers out, but otherwise the house just sits there. It seems a shame that such an educational piece of property would sit unused or unopened. The lessons that could be learned and the truth about a vile part of Illinois history would be out there for all to see. Most people probably are not aware that a reverse underground railroad even existed. The old slave house is a key part of that history. And the disturbing energy left behind may find comfort in the empathy of visitors. Perhaps if there are unquiet spirits here, they would feel as though they could leave because their story has been told. Are there spirits still hanging out at the Crenshaw house? Is the old slave house haunted? That is for you to decide. And it looks like a beautiful home on the outside. Unfortunately, the inside was not such a nice place. And I was looking through some newspaper stories about this and what they were going to do with the house when they thought it might get open. And there were some stories that claim that none of this actually really did happen, that Crenshaw wasn't keeping slaves up there, that there were no cells on the third floor. But you know how I feel when it comes to legends. There has to be a little bit of truth in there. So while some of this may be exaggerated... I have no doubt that Crenshaw was taking free blacks back to Kentucky and selling them back into slavery. I have no doubt that in order to facilitate that, he probably was keeping some of them locked up. Did he have a breeding program? I don't know. I know a lot of slave owners did, so it's not like it would be out of the norm or a shocking thing. But just one of those vile places. Thank you to Andrea for suggesting this to me. I encourage you guys to check out the website at historygoesbump.com. And if you would like to send me some feedback, you can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. I did get an email from Edel. She said, I recently went home to Ireland to visit family and friends. My childhood friend moved to County Wexford, so I went along to see her new place. Nearby stands Loftus Hall, which is credited as being the most haunted house in Ireland. And we did cover that in one of our episodes. She also said Hook Lighthouse is about a 15-minute drive from Loftus Hall. The origins of the lighthouse date back to the 12th century, but even before that, from the 8th century onwards, religious monks used to light fires on that spot to stop ships coming too close to the rugged coastline. 
The tour given was one of the best I've experienced. So if you ever go to Ireland, then I can definitely recommend a stop in County Wexford. So that would be a good recommendation for all of you. I do hope to get to Ireland eventually one day. And Deb left a comment on the website. HGB has given me so many ideas for trips. Love it. It's very entertaining. I've learned so much about history. Diane's voice is pleasant. I turn it on at bedtime and drift off to sleep. Then I can go back to old episodes and hear something new each time. So I've played through the episodes many times now. The Spectacular Crew is wonderful. Yes, they are. It's awesome to know there's so many of us interested in the paranormal. Fantastic research. My favorite podcast. And I have to say, Deb, it was a pleasure getting to meet you this weekend. Had a great time with you. And we do have a review over at Apple Podcasts from Giselle Sparrow. Love, love, love. Five stars. I've been binge listening to this show since last November, and I'm sad to say that I'm caught up. Love all of the episodes, including the very first episodes that are a little shaky. I've loved listening to the show grow and how much the host loves the listeners. My favorite episodes so far are the St. James Hotel in Cimarron, New Mexico, and the Imbolc episode. Can't wait for more. Well, thank you so much, Giselle, for that. I'm so glad to have you guys join me for this episode. I have been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. The show is completely listener-supported, so it's you guys that help me to produce this. And I greatly appreciate those of you who have been contributing. Would love to get a lot more of you on board. You don't have to give a whole lot of money to make a huge difference because $1 from this person and a dollar from that person and a dollar from that person all adds up. And with that dollar, you get into the HGB Losers Club. And if you were in there, you would have gotten a whole bunch of Facebook Live videos from my Charleston adventures this last weekend. Come on and join the other executive producers. We'd love to have you. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. And we're welcoming into the cemetery Melissa Potter, who will be getting a place on our niche wall, and Jason Magania, who will be getting a marble headstone. And Mort, our gravedigger, likes work. So let's give him lots of work. Because if we don't keep him happy and keep him working, I don't know what he might do. Have you seen my ping pong ball? Want to keep the spooks away? Give us a review.